Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you, shall, thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall, shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to him, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass, pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. And so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keeping yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest... When you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city." You know, it's been eight weeks since we uh, have been in the book of Joshua. We have had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and special speaker. And Jacob brought a phenomenal New Year's Day message. If you were not here for that, you should go back and listen to it. And finally, eight weeks have gone by and we come back to the book of Joshua where we were last in chapter five, a chapter that that honestly most people are unfamiliar with. It tends to get skipped in our Sunday school and the children's church and in our upbringing, but it's an important chapter. It's a chapter where we realize that God cares most about the condition of our hearts. This generation that we're 
now leading the conquest of Palestine. They had either been small children at, at, during the Exodus, or they had been born during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They're the crossover generation. And yet, because of their parents, they still had attached to them the reproach of Egypt. You see, their parents, their loyalty, their allegiance was to the God of Egypt and to the gods of, of the surrounding people. They were not committed to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so they had never uh, attached their children and brought them under the covenants of God. They ignored this. And so when this generation crosses over into the promised land and miraculously walked through the, the Jordan River that had been stopped up, they paused. And there in chapter 5, we, we read of how they committed their lives to God by taking upon themselves the sign of the covenant and participating in the Passover, which had not been done in decades. And so for several critical days outside the, the, the walls of Jericho, down in the, in the plain down below, the, the, the people of Israel are vulnerable as a more, you know, several hundred thousand men and boys are circumcised. And it's signifying these families and their commitment to God. By taking on the sign of the covenant, they renewed this commitment. They transferred and, and made clear that their allegiance was with God. They wanted to be God's people and they identified with him and entered and into relationship with them. Well, while they're healing, Joshua goes out, no doubt to, to look and kind of see Jericho and the battleground. And while he's there, he comes into contact with this mysterious figure. It's clearly a warrior figure. And he asks the question, are, are you with us? Or are you with the enemy? And this warrior said, uh, no. And that's not the answer that Joshua was wanting, but it was clear that it, this person was the, the Lord of God's army. Uh, we would say that this was a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't on Joshua's side or Jericho's side. Jesus was on Jesus's side, the kingdom of God's side. And he made it clear that Joshua's responsibility was not for Jesus to get on Joshua's side, but for Joshua to make sure that he was on Jesus's side and on the side of God. And he made it clear to him that he would be leading them through the conquest, and that Joshua needed to follow his battle plan. Well, now we come to chapter 6, a story that is known by all of us who have ever, any of us who have been raised in a Christian home or in church, Sunday school, you have heard, this, I mean, how many of you have heard the story of Jericho before? Raise your hand. Okay. Just curious, who has, who is this the first time you heard the story of Jericho? Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay. I think, and even if you may not want to stand out, I understand. But probably most of us, but 99% of us, we are very familiar with this story. We've been raised with this story. Some of us have been in choirs where we sing spirituals about how Jer Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. I mean, this story is extremely well known. And as a result, what happens is we kind of gloss over it. Or we ignore the, the hard parts of the story. Certainly, we were not uh, taught very much, and it wasn't dwelt on when we were in Sunday school, those of us who were kids, the, the latter third of this chapter. 
the hard portions. And, and just so you're clear, we're going to actually devote two sermons to this chapter. Next time, we will take up the hard part portions of this chapter, the portions that create uh, reasons in the minds of those who want to resist God for why they should not follow Christ and why they can justify just ignoring the God of the Bible because of how this story ends. We'll deal with that next time. But this morning, I just simply want us to focus on a few gospel applications that are very relevant to our lives. First of all, in these opening verses, what we can see is that from a human perspective, God's solution to a problem often appears just absolutely absurd. I mean, how would you have addressed this issue standing before them, the city of Jericho? I mean, they had a, they had a major problem. A major obstacle was before the children. We shouldn't downplay the significance of what was facing them. Uh, this is a topographical map of, of, the, the, of Palestine and Israel. And what you'll notice here, uh, just to put it in context, uh, right about here, it, you know, they've crossed over right in here. And they're down here. And you can see that's a big valley. And then a ridge line, uh, it, it comes up. This line of mountains runs throughout the promised land, and, and here's Jerusalem, and all these different cities and villages would be up, up here, and there's a road that runs north to south here. There's a road that runs north to south here. If you're going to conquer Palestine, as General Allenby in World War I did, you, you basically enter here, and then you go either south or north, and then you take all the other. I mean, that's the normal way to conquest. The problem is, right here, that gateway into Palestine, into the Promised Land, stands Jericho. Jericho is a fascinating city. Um, it's at the top of this elevation, about 2,500 feet. If you know anything about warfare, you always want to have the high ground. They have the high ground. There's a narrow road. They have been sitting here what, what, for, since basically 9,000 B.C. Uh, Jericho is either the oldest known human city or it's like in the top two or three. Um, we know for a fact that archaeologists have shown that it's the first walled city. The first wall around this city was around 8,000 BC. Uh, interestingly, uh, archaeology not only tells us that about it, but it also tells us that in 1400 BC, the time of Joshua, the city was absolutely destroyed, flattened. And it would remain desolate and empty for around four to 500 years where the Bible tells us the name of the man who goes in and begins to rebuild the city and it's repopulated again. If it were not for that time of emptiness that the Bible tells us about from Joshua to roughly the, one of the, the kings right after Solomon, then Jericho would be the oldest occupied, the longest occupied human city in the world. It's been around forever. And it is a stronghold. At the end of chapter 5, Joshua is thinking about, how do I defeat the city? He's already sent out spies to look at the city. They've, they've told him what it's like. And Joshua was a, was a general. He had fought many battles. He had defeated other cities. And so how would he have approached this obstacle? 
like any good warrior would have approached. He'd have brought his generals around and then commanders around and they would have taught strategy and do we lay a siege against it? How do we overcome the elevation and the narrow roads? How do we not ensure that we are decimated as we're trying to get up to the, all of these various obstacles that are before him? He's considering them, but then he comes into contact with this commander of the Lord's army and the commander gives him a very different solution and a very different set of tactics. Imagine what Joshua was thinking. Okay, I'm listening. Here's what I want you to do, Joshua, the commander says. I want you to take your army. I want you to put some platoons out front. And then after them, I want seven priests with horns blowing loudly. Then the Ark of the Covenant with the priest will carry it. And then behind them comes the rest of the army. I want you to march up to Jericho, go around the city in complete silence, and go back to camp. Okay, Lord, got it. Day two, I want you to send out some platoons in front of these guys who are blowing horns, seven priests, and then behind them is the ark, and then behind them is the rest of the army, and I want you to march around the city on day two in complete silence, and then go back to the camp. See where you're going with this, okay? And this is repeated until, as we know, the seventh day. It's absurd. You don't defeat a city by marching around it in silence, blowing horns. I mean, that's not how it's done. But yet, what you'll see, church, throughout the Scriptures is that God repeatedly solves the problems of his people in ways that defy logic and appear at first glance to be absolutely absurd. You just go to the next couple of books, the book of Judges. And there you see a scared general with an army of 32,000 that is outnumbered three to four to one. And God says to him, you have too many men. Let's willow out, winnow out those who really don't want to be here. And by the time they were done winnowing out the army, 32,000 is reduced to 300. And God says, now you're ready to fight. And he, in a miraculous way, gives them absolute victory over this massive army of Midianites. Or consider the fact that God provides Samson with the jawbone of a jackass to, to, to de defeat a thousand Philistines and to provide support to his people. I mean, how miraculous is that? And, and by the way, if you haven't noticed, God still does that every Sunday to his people through the jawbones of many jackasses, I would just say. Uh, <laughs> Or you go to the book of Samuel, and where do you see there? You see a little shepherd boy with a slingshot and some river rocks defeating the great warrior, Goliath. Or you progress a little bit further in the scriptures, and you see God providing for the hunger of his people as Jesus takes a little tiny lunch from a small boy and feeds thousands with food left over. Or in the book of Acts, the apostle as he's facing execution in prison and God's people are hiding in a house praying for him and God delivers him out of his chains. Throughout the scriptures, this is how God works. He does this in the, in the biggest example. Our greatest problem is the ultimate example of, of this absurdity of God's plans. Our greatest problem is how our sin has separated us from our creator. We need to be reconciled to him and 
We stand in our natural state justly deserving his eternal judgment. Man's solutions, our thinking, when we get around a table, how do we get reconciled to God? It all focuses on personal worth. You perform better. You do good things. You earn God's forgiveness. But God has a different plan, a plan that none of us would ever create in a thousand years, a plan that appears absolutely absurd by human standards. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sacrifices himself. God takes on flesh and comes and dies for our sins. That's absurd. The person offended is not the one who has to pay the penalty. It's the offender that pays the penalty. God's plans, God's math is not man's math and man's plans. And they often appear absurd. The writers of scriptures, the apostles, they understood this. The apostle Paul considering the gospel being proclaimed to the Corinthians, says to them, Jews demand signs, Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Church, from a human perspective, God's solution to whatever problem, whatever obstacle is before you will often appear absurd. From some of you this morning, your greatest problem that needs to be solved is that you have yet to be reconciled with your creator. You're living in your sin, you're rejecting his love, you're rejecting his gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and the solution to your problem, like that crossover generation, is to align yourself with God's person and God's solution, Jesus. And you'll see your sins forgiven. And you'll see your problems come under his sovereignty in ways that you've never seen before. For others of us, we've been reconciled to God, but we still need the restoration that only the gospel can bring into our lives. Our problems, our obstacles are many. For some of us, it's a difficult marriage, or it's an addiction, or it's a heart that is broken with grief. It may be financial bondage, a a body that is wearing out from disease. It could be emotional. Your emotions are just all over the place because of past trauma or current conditions. Here's what I'm certain of. When, when God brings his restoration to your life and that problem is ultimately solved, you will stand back amazed at how God did it. He does it in ways we can never anticipate or expect because his plans, his solutions, they just seem absurd. But in time, you'll see it. And when you see that solution that he brings into your life, what you'll recognize is that it always reinforces to us as his children how badly we need Jesus and we must rely upon Jesus every moment of our lives. God's plans, God's solution to our problems. (sighs) Go figure. (laughs) I've said that more than once in my Christian walk. Go figure. I didn't see that one coming. Have you ever experienced that? 
they often appear absurd. Secondly, there is an inseparable link between faith and obedience. Verses 6 to 16 describe what took place. Joshua receives the plan. And, and what's interesting, if you read those passages clearly, Joshua announces the day's plan each day. So the first day, he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. And he, and he lays out before them what I told you. And everybody gets up, they march around, and they go back to the city. Day two, okay, guys, gather together, huddle up. Here's the play. We're going to march around the city one time. We're going to be led by the military guys, the horns, the Ark of the Covenant. The rest of us are going to come behind. Nobody say a word. Absolute silence. Yes, Joshua. Yes, sir. Day two, around they go. Day three. All right, guys, huddle up. Here's the play. Same instructions. But I bet you by day three, it was a little different. I'm sure on day one, on day two, maybe the, the people of Jericho, the army, their army, they're standing up on the walls, you know, and they're nervous. We know they're nervous. Rahab's told us already how afraid they are. They've, they, they saw them cross over the Jordan River. Their God can stop the river. They're well aware of the power of Jehovah, but they won't turn to Jehovah. They continue to reject him. And so they're on the walls. They're afraid. Day one, what are they doing? Day two, look at this guy. You know, by day three, they're starting to trash talk. They're starting to jeer and they're scorning and they're laughing and they're shouting insults at the people of Israel. And here are these poor Israelite warriors who are not normally emotionally or intellectually predisposed to keep their mouth shut have to be absolutely quiet. Certainly by day four or five, the people of Jericho are talking trash as badly as the charger defensive backfield last night after the fourth interception. And I promise that's my only Jaguar illusion in this entire day. And they're hearing the trash talk coming from these guys, day four, day five, day six, and they have to be absolutely quiet until finally on day seven, Jericho, uh, Joshua says, we're marching around seven times today. Well, there's a big improvement in the plan. But at the end of this plan, guys, I'm gonna have the horns blast and I want you to yell with everything you have. And when that happens, just watch what God does. And sure enough, and the underlying Hebrew is interesting. When they shout, and what a step of faith this is. I mean, it's not like the walls were already crumbling and cracks or everything. I mean, the walls look solid and they shout and the walls, the underlying Hebrew just say, they just collapse. They don't fall out, they don't fall in, they just collapse like pancakes. And by the way, archeology span has affirmed this. They have found that, that comparison, it's like, wow. They just, it's like they just, and in they go. And the city is absolutely defeated. What an absurd plan. Why would God do it like this? Why would God, I mean, Guys, I mean, we all realize, right, that if God wanted to impress the Israelites, he could have just said, okay, guys, I want you to march up there and, you know, step back because I'm about to do something awesome. And he could just send a few tornadoes in and, and tore it apart. He could have had it hit by a meteorite. I mean, he could have done any number of things. I mean, he could have destroyed it like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, just sit back like Lot and watch this, guys. 
This is about to become one big bonfire. I'm gonna take care of this for you. He could have done it any number of ways. Why does he have them march around the city seven days in a row, seven times on the seventh day? Why this complexity to the plan? Well, I would suggest to you that God's solution to our problem has at least two overarching purposes besides the actual resolution of the problem itself. The first purpose in God's solution is always to glorify himself. It's to glorify himself. Well, you know, as a reformed church, we love the five solas, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone. That fifth sola is sola dea gloria. God alone gets the glory. And that's how God works. God acts this way to reveal his power and his might and his personality, which in turn ends up spurring and motivating his people to adore him, to be in awe of him and wonder of him, to worship him. God is jealous for his glory. And every solution to any obstacle we have, first and foremost, is designed so that we may glorify and worship him. The prophet Ezekiel says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is always at the heart of whatever God does, church. Even in our own trials as a church right now, as there's uncertainty and there's problems and there's obstacles, understand that God is at work in order to first and foremost glorify himself through us to unbelieving people. That's what's going on. There's a second purpose though. With every solution that God brings and the obstacles and the problems that we face, there is a testing and a refining a deepening of our faith that is part of what God is doing. I mean, think about it. If you were given these instructions like this each day, enduring the jeers and the scorns and the attitude of the people on that wall of Jericho as you march silently by, would that not test your faith? Certainly by day two, wouldn't your faith begin to be a little... By day four, aren't you going, oh... I wonder if Joshua got some bad mushrooms. I mean, something is going to run through your head about this plan that is going on. It's a test of faith. If on the, on, the, on the seventh day, now you're commanded to march around seven times and shout before there's ever a crack in the wall, would that not be a test of your faith? If you obey, And when you obey, those walls just collapse like pancakes and you walk in and you plunder a city that has stood for several thousand years. What do you think that would do to your faith? What do you think that did for the Israelites as they are now on the, the, the first battle, the first city of what will be numerous peoples and numerous cities? What do you think it did for their faith 
as they face what was before them, having this be God's solution to this major city. What a, what a gracious act for God, of God that at the outset of this invasion, he's teaching them this invaluable kingdom truth that the battle belongs to the Lord. The problem and the battle is more than just a, a temporal, physical obstacle that we're facing. There's more important things going on. The battle, the problem, and the solution is ultimately rooted in God's kingdom and in the spiritual realm. And so this is why God through Zechariah would say, it's not by might, it's nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Church, the same is true for us, and the Apostle Paul recognized this. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He tells the Corinthians, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh and of this world. They are, our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. Church, we live in a fallen world and, and we ourselves are fallen behind our daily problems, behind the obstacles, behind the things that most disturb you, whatever form they may take, there is a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality requires a spiritual solution to it. Don't miss that. So God's solution to these problems, they demand that we trust him. They demand that we, that we demonstrate that trust through obedience and following his word and his leading of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, what occurs is that God is glorified through us and he transforms us more and more into the image of the commander of the Lord's army. Don't miss the inseparable link here between faith and trusting in God's word and obedience. This is how God solves our problems. Finally, and this is kind of by way of our takeaway truth this morning, a third application in this passage is that God responds with overwhelming faithfulness to those who trust in him. Verse 17 through 20 has the, the play out of all this. It's interesting, there's all this buildup, and then there's like one verse given to the actual battle, right? Just verse 20, it's like, okay, it happened, and they go in. And we'll deal with the, the hard portions of verses 17 to the end of the chapter in the next message. But for right now, what I want us to focus on is that as hard and as confusing as it must have been, the people of God end up trusting him they end up obeying him. And then God responds with this overwhelming demonstration and display of his faithfulness and his mighty power. They, they trust him. They obey him. Okay, do you not make total sense to me that God wants us to do this, that God wants me to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm gonna trust in him. I'm gonna obey him. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The church of God, or the people of God in Israel, 
I experienced this incredible reminder of God's faithfulness to them, that he's going to be with them for that battle and the battles to come. But in the midst of that great lesson that he gives them, there's this individual story. I so appreciate the fact that as much as God cares for us as the corporate people and the corporate church, God cares equally as much for us as individuals. And you see this and you see his providential faithfulness and care and this display of power as you come to, back to Rahab the harlot. Remember her? Chapter two, what, 12 weeks ago probably when we first read her story. The woman who hides the spies in the city of Jericho and she deceives the forces so that they're able to ultimately escape and go back to Joshua and, and tell him what was going on. That woman who's a harlot, she's a prostitute. And, and she, she expresses her faith and her trust in the God of the people of Israel. And they tell her, when we come back, hang a red cord out the window through which you're, we're escaping. And when the battle happens, everyone who is in your house will be saved. And Rahab heard those words of hope. She acted on them. And when this battle occurs, what do you think went through the minds of the people when they see the walls collapse by like pancakes, except for this little segment where there's a red cord hanging out the window where the one person and her family in the city who turned to God are rescued and saved. What a beautiful picture of the links that God will go to ensure that we are part of his family. You know, all of us who belong to Christ, if you pause and you think about it and you look back at how God worked in your life to solve this problem that you have, that I have at birth, at being separated from God because of sin, you will find that same providential, sovereign faithfulness to you in your story and how he rescued you from the bondage of sin and delivered you into his family and adopted you as a son and daughter. He's writing that story in your life. Child of God, Christian, uh, we're facing Jerichos right now. In our personal lives, in our church, we, we're like, okay, we're talking about walls falling down. We need walls to be built up. <laughs> yeah. We have our own obstacles, don't we? We have our own Jerichos. And, and in, in our lifetime as individuals and as a church, we're gonna have multiple, multiple Jerichos. They're gonna come at us from so many different directions. And these strongholds that come before us, sometimes it's gonna be in our life as an individual, sometimes it's gonna be in our children and our family and our church and our nation. And this message of this passage right here is calling on us to trust God, to obey him in the uncertainty as we face those strongholds. To, to trust in his faithfulness and his almighty power to collapse a stronghold in a way that we could never imagine would happen. To trust that he will do this for us. You know, God does not promise us a life without Jerichos. He does not promise us a life of ease and comfort, a life without trials and tribulations. In fact, it's the exact opposite. But we are promised that as we experience those times in our lives, 
as he put before us in Joshua chapter one, I am God Almighty. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. And as we see here, and I will defeat these strongholds, but I'm gonna do it in a way that only glorifies me, in a way that mystifies you. Isn't that fun? And we look at God and say, "Mm, not always, but ultimately it is. We serve a awesome God. How wonderful it is to know that we are promised that even if the devil himself comes to destroy us, the Lord wraps us in his hands, holding on to us, guarding us and protecting us and telling I will do this until either I take you home or I return in my glory. No man, no being, no person on earth or an unseen power will snatch you out of my hands. These kinds of truth, church, encourage us. And so this week, may we trust God with our problems. May we take to him our obstacles, our strongholds, our Jerichos, and and put ourselves before him and listen to his word and to his spirit as he guides us towards a solution and all along the way, trusting in him and obeying him, knowing that inevitably he is going to glorify himself in us and through us for his great name's sake. May that be true for each of us this week. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to look at a well-known story and think of how it relates to us. Certainly, we don't have necessarily walled cities with enemies trying to kill us, but we have our own obstacles and problems that need solutions. We mentioned, Lord, just a moment ago, kind of jokingly, we don't need concrete walls to be torn down. We need them to be built up. And we ask, as your people, that you will help us to trust you as we face obstacles, even as we try to build a new facility. May you help us to trust you, to lean into your faithfulness, to not grow discouraged, and, and, but to obey, even when we don't see the final solution knowing that you have the final solution. You've written it out. You are the sovereign God who providentially cares for us. And as true as this is for us as a church, Lord Jesus, as I look across this audience, I see men and women, even children, who are facing all kinds of obstacles and problems. Some of them are are very severe. Lord, I just ask that you would help them Help me to trust you. Lord, help us not to lean into our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you and to trust you to direct our path. Give us the grace that we need to rest securely in the the hands of our Lord Jesus, to receive from you the power, the insight, the wisdom, the strength that we need to face whatever the obstacle may be. And Lord, may we glorify you through the fight, through the struggle, and then when you give us the solution, may we praise your name with all of our might. In your name I pray these things, Jesus. Amen.